Hello, and welcome back to my Love Letter Time Machine, where we are unfolding the Victorian love story contained in the letters of two ordinary people from Yorkshire, Fred Shepherd and Janie Warburton. I'm Ingrid Bertel Hughes, and I just happen to be their great great granddaughter. Each week, we travel 140 years back in time to discover the latest happenings. And today, we find out how Fred is getting on with finding lodgings in Middlesbrough and how Janie is coping without him back in Hansworth. At the end of season one, we saw an anxious Fred get on a train and leave home in Sheffield to go and work for Dr Arthur Cooper at the North Eastern Steel Company that was starting up in Middlesbrough. Janie, now his fiancée, stayed behind in Hansworth. Fred also left his mother Anne in an uncertain situation financially, given that Anne's grandson was now threatening to evict her. When Fred got to the other end, he grabbed a moment to send Janie a quick note. It's very faded, as it's written in pencil. Middlesbrough, November the 7th, 1881. My Jane, just time to tell you that I arrived all safe at 12 today. I have had dinner and tea with Mr Marston, and am now going to seek lodgings. I've had a hard day's work for a start. I had not time to write at the office, and they have no pens at this place, so you must excuse pencil. We'll write to you more tomorrow. I remain your lover, Fred. Jane's next reply seems to hint that there has been another quick letter from Fred, but this has since gone missing. Hansworth, November the 9th, 1881. My darling Fred, I wish I was with you to comfort you, but don't get downhearted, love. That will never do. Or if you do, I shall have to come to get you before next autumn. I hope the sickness is not very serious. If you get any more, I will go to a doctor, love. You must not be laid up over there if you can help it. Or what shall I do to have you such a long way off? Perhaps the change of air does not suit you at first. I think the curious sinking sensation arises from you not being well, love, not the tackling of the big job. I know you will be able to master it, love, for my sake and because I cannot imagine you to fail. Your mother bore up very well. We comforted each other. I waited until Arthur came back to hear if you'd gone in pretty good spirits. I'm sorry you were unfortunate about the lodgings. I wish I'd been there to look them out for you. Our Emma has got a letter from the lawyer this morning to say that it is all all right. Joyful news. It has been the rent dinners today. Only time for a few lines. Always. Your loving and faithful wife to be, Janie. I wonder if the letter from Emma's lawyers is confirming the decree Nisai in her divorce. Jane sounds very encouraged. She's obviously missing Fred already as she sends him another letter three days later. Excuse the smear, in haste as usual. Hansworth, November the 12th, 1881. My darling Fred, I wish your wife could come over to see that you are all right. I hope the sickness has left you, love. Have you taken some of your physic? I wish I could spend Sunday with you, and then we should be happy. I would comfort you so nicely. I'm afraid you'll have to fetch me before next year, 
if all the weeks are as long as this one has been, in spite of not hating the furniture. We shall rejoice when the five weeks are over. I don't know how I should let you go back again without me. I felt so disappointed that I did not have a letter this morning to carry me over Sunday. I quite dread it coming without you. We used to like our Sundays together, did we not? I wish I could give you one kiss. I wish you were a bit nearer. Write me all the particulars as soon as you can, my darling. I went to Higgs on Thursday to see Annie for the last time. She has started for Northamptonshire. She has had to go sooner on account of Frank. They are afraid of him telling. They will all go there before they start for Australia. I do feel sorry for them. It is a shame they have to go. I think Mr Higgs could have hit on some other plan if he had tried. Our John has not got into anything yet. I'm afraid their wedding is in the very distant future. John Cross was at our house on Thursday night. He was telling our Emma that they are going to be married before Christmas. I suppose I shall be invited to the wedding, so I will give you all the particulars. Lucy Ellen is coming here on Tuesday, so she will tell when it is going to be. I don't know the exact date. Can you get the supplement, or am I to send it to you? Have you got out of your fix about the washing? If you send them home, tell your mother I will go down any afternoon and I will do them for her. I shall go to Darnell at some afternoon next week and learn cruel work, and I will call and see her. We have had a very busy week, so I have not had time to do any things towards our home this week, but plan what I am going to do. I have not time for any more tonight, love. Always, your loving and faithful wife, Janie. Now that we are entering a period where I have many more letters from Janie, we start to get information on some of the people who lived in Hansworth. I looked on the census for the Higgs. Annie Higgs was born in Hansworth and was 16. Her father Samuel, a stone and marble mason, was originally from Northampton. I think Janie's main friendship here is with Caroline, which in later letters Janie calls Carrie. She was Samuel's eldest daughter and Annie's older sister. I haven't figured all this out yet, but Samuel Higgs, I assume for economic reasons, has decided to send some portion of his family to Australia and make a new life. And it looks as if they're going back to Northampton for a family visit before starting out, keeping Annie's little nine-year-old brother in the dark for the time being. It may be that other family members in Northampton are the ones going to Australia and taking the youngest children, Annie and Frank, with them. It would certainly explain Janie's future references to Carrie's distress. Finally, on Saturday, Fred has a chance to sit down, and in his long letter of Saturday the 13th of November, he catches Janie up on his week and starts to paint her a picture of the town. Fred was anxious about this journey and the move, and it would appear that the tradition of baggage handlers being careless with one's luggage is a long one. The detail that surprised me the most was that Fred had to put in a full afternoon's work before he was able to look for lodgings. In contrast, his boss, the aforementioned Mr Cooper, as managing director, has the liberty of being able to look for accommodation during work time. 21 Church Street, Middlesbrough, November 13th, 1881. My darling Janie, Sunday away from you, love, is not very much like Sunday. 
In my last letters, I was pressed for time, so I will give you the past week's experience. Monday. Of course, after getting rid of my early breakfast, I did not feel very robust. I had a very comfortable carriage, but I could not smoke or read anything. I felt as though I were leaving my heart, or half myself behind me, which you know, love, was quite true. I had not many occupants until I got to Pontefract, where a lot of businessmen got in. They commenced smoking, which almost upset the gravity of my stomach. At York, I had to change, and had twenty minutes to wait. I here had the pleasure of seeing them smash two feet off my box and getting it out of the luggage van. They handled it so delicately. The next place I changed was at Darlington, and then I went on to Middlesbrough, where I arrived at 11.50, and at once proceeded to the exchange, where I commenced work at once. Ten past one went to dinner with Marston, and at 2.30 back again to work. Rather a good beginning, was it not? Mr Cooper came by the same train as I did, and they were inspecting public buildings, or rather looking for a house. I may have to tell you that to get a decent house in Middleborough is no easy matter. I could not even find lodgings that night, so had to sleep with Marston. Tuesday, went out again at dinner time, and then at night, but could not find a fit place. One house I should have liked to have stopped at. It was so nice. Just what I expect our home to be, love. It was very tastefully arranged, and quite a refined atmosphere pervaded it. But the price was rather too much for me. That is, for the purpose which you know I have in view, namely a similar home of our own love. Price was 12 shillings for the room alone, board, washing, fire, gas, etc., all extra, which I reckon to come to about 25 shillings altogether. Another place they asked 17 shillings for everything, but it was very poorly furnished and not very clean. Seeing that I could not get a suitable place, Marston said that I could sleep with him until his wife comes over, which was very good of him, for he much prefers a bed to himself. On Wednesday night, we went on a voyage of discovery and had a game at billiards in a public house, but I had nothing to drink. And in fact, that is the only time I've been in a public house so far. On Thursday night, we went to St Paul's Church to evening service. Marston had been the previous Sunday and gave me a glowing account of it. So I went to see for myself. It is a very pretty church and I should think a fairly good choir on Sundays. On Friday night, the vicar of St Paul's called upon us and stayed some time it is very probable that I shall join in the choir. After the parson had gone, we had two fellows in from next door to play at whist. They are both draftsmen at our office and pretty decent fellows. Saturday, busy day. Mr Cooper dictated the letters to me and then I had to fetch the money from the bank and pay the wages and salaries. After dinner, I went to see a football match between Middlesbrough and the Tyne Association, but it was very one-sided. Middlesbrough had it all their own way. I think our Attercliffe club could beat either or both of them. At night, I went round the town. The streets are very well arranged, but very flat, so that at night you can see to any distance in a straight line, and they mostly go off at right angles. This has been done with Middlesbrough being an entirely new town, sadly too new. I'm beginning to like it much better now, which was very necessary, for last Wednesday and Thursday I was very downhearted. In fact, I wished I had never left Brown Bailey and Dixon. This is not because Mr Cooper is hard to please. We get on very well together, and he seems to like me very much. Tis very considerate, which makes it a pleasure to work for him. I have plenty of work, almost too much, but that I am not afraid of. 
but my duties are so multifarious, being correspondence, cashier, bookkeeper, and several other jobs too numerous to mention. Townsend the Movers have been very aggravating. I got some of the books on Friday, and some have not come yet. Mr Cooper went to Sheffield yesterday, and on Monday goes to Manchester. I am to open the company letters tomorrow, and reply to them. Fancy that. If position were anything, I have got it here, there being nobody to interfere with me, and I am introduced by Marston as our chief clerk. Marston went to see his wife yesterday. Why cannot I go to see my wife? She is as much to me as his to him. There is one young fellow lodging here, and he has been here some years. He's about 27, clerk, plays a corner in the volunteers, which he does very nicely. We got along very well together. This morning I went to St Hilda's Church. The Archbishop of York was preaching. The mayor and corporation were there, and the rifles and artillery and bobbies. I'm very comfortable here. My landlady is a widower who belongs the house and has some other houses belong to her too, so that she is not grasping. In fact, she feeds us too well. We have puddings and pastry every day, and very often sorts of meat. For breakfast we have kippers or eggs, brown bread, white bread, cake, etc. Tea the same. Supper, milk and fruit pies or tarts, cheese, etc. Today we had a rabbit for dinner with pork and apple sauce. On the whole, we feed very well. I'm going to St Paul's Church tonight to hear the Archbishop again. I shall want you to send me a letter every Saturday, if not oftener, so that I can read it on Sundays. It will brighten my lot a little. If you go down to Darnall this week, call at our house and see if my mother has sent the papers. If not, will you kindly send them to me at the bub address? I don't think I can last out until Christmas, my darling. I so yearn for you. Your photograph is not quite sufficient. They have a very good harmonium here and plenty of music, so that I have something to cheer me up. I will give you some more particulars in my next, and remain, my darling Janie, your loving Fred. P.S. If you think me prosy, say so and I'll cut it short. I feel for Fred so much. A real shocker of a first day. Throw up your breakfast with anxiety and the sadness of farewells. Watch your luggage get damaged and then focus on making a good impression, all the while wondering where in fact you are going to lay your head that night, and then that turns out to be with your co-worker. I'm struck with the contrast between the personal experience of a young man trying to find his bearings in his new job, in a new town, and the engine of industrialisation that is now in full flow, irrevocably transforming the once quiet banks of the River Tee forever. Acquiring the name Ironopolis from the production of Pig Iron, Middlesbrough was now switching to steel production, and the company that Fred was working for, North Eastern Steel, would over the decades become part of Dorman Long, the world's largest producer of steel, notable for such edifices as the Sydney Harbour Bridge. But back in 1881, Fred would have had no way of knowing that he'd backed the right horse in moving from Sheffield to Middlesbrough to follow Mr Cooper. Fred's new offices were based in the Royal Exchange, 
a grand red brick building specifically built to house the offices of several companies and facilitate trading. They were immediately opposite the Middlesbrough railway station. Fred found lodgings about a mile west in Church Street near St Paul's Church. The steelworks were situated on the north bend of the River Tee, only a mile away from the exchange. For someone who would regularly walk 18-mile loops in the countryside around Sheffield, having to walk a mile into the office or popping over to the works would have been considered completely trivial. After clearly suffering from homesickness, it's good to see Fred settling in, and he obviously relishes his new responsibilities. The next person who writes to Fred is his brother, Arthur. You may recall from the last episode of season one that Anne, Fred's mother, had received an ultimatum from her grandson concerning his recent inheritance of the family home, that she was either to leave or pay him rent. Arthur writes, November the 14th, 1881. Dear Fred, I think we are going on as usual, except mother. She is not so well at present. I have not had much more work, but I have spoken to Mr. Wilde, asking that if he should want another in the offices, he would find me a place. He says he will remember it. So do not write to Mr. Robinson for me at present. Our Walter has given mother two shillings yesterday, and he says she shall have more. We received the P.O.O. all right. I hope you are better and that your appetite has returned and that you will like Middlesbrough better. I saw W. Barker and he said I was to tell you that Redcar is coming to Attercliffe to play. All send their kind love to you. From your affectionate brother, Arthur Shepherd. P.S. Pigs are all right. Have you seen the answer to the inquiry in the Telegraph? It was in last Tuesday's. I enclose for you a copy. A.S. Enclosed is a clipping dated by hand by Arthur, Tuesday, November the 8th, 1881. Obviously, they have written to a newspaper advice column and it reads, Anxious, A dies without making a will, leaving a house and land freehold. The eldest son, of course, claims the property, but ultimately agrees to let B, the widow, live rent-free. Three years afterwards, the eldest son dies and his eldest son claims that B, the widow, must either leave the house and receive one-third the rental, or, if she prefers to stay in the house, she must pay to him two-thirds of the rental. Can B, the widow, force the sale of the property and receive one-third of the value, thus realised at once? And the response reads, B can bring an action to compel the heir to assign part of the land to her as dower. She could not compel the heir to sell, but he would probably be content to do so if she insists upon her dower being assigned outright and is not content to share the rent of the house. By being stupid, the widow or the heir might diminish the value of their respective shares considerably. I've had a couple of comments since the season one finale went out that people are really quite cross with Anne's grandson. I wonder what he thought of this information. I think that the P.O.O., that Arthur mentions here could well be a post office order from Fred, sending some of his first wage packet to his mother. Their older brother Walter has sent money too. This looks like they are helping Anne pay the rent for the time being. It's a bit rough on Fred. Instead of being able to keep the spare cash for him and Janie, he's got to defer that and help his mother. The sense of care from Anne's children rallying around her is very present. Funnily enough, postal orders first came into use just 10 months before in January 1881. 
Postal orders were developed to enable people without bank accounts to buy goods and services by post, as they were unable to write cheques. It feels very Fred to be making use of this system. Sending money like this would have been modernity in action. Meanwhile, back in Handsworth, this next letter from Jane demonstrates all too well the disaster piece that Emma was becoming and that the divorce has not been the panacea that the family were hoping for. Hansworth, November the 16th, 1881. My darling, would that I could talk to you for only a few minutes. I have Lucy Ellen staying with me, and our Emma has got so drunk that she has fallen down on the bedroom floor. You may judge how I feel about it, love, but it is always the same if anybody comes. I have locked her in the bedroom, and there she may stay. I don't know whatever we shall do with her. She gets worse and worse. I'm afraid nothing will do her any good. She is far too gone. Eh, love, I should pull your nose for saying anything about being prosy. You know anything interests me that has anything to do with you. I am so glad you have got such comfortable lodgings. And a harmonium, it will cheer you up. I wish I was with you to help you sing. I think I should join the choir, love. I shall be able to hear you sing there some day, when I am the chief clerk's wife, you knows. I shall be so proud of you. Write back by return if you have time, my darling. Ever believe me to be your faithful and loving wife-to-be, Janie. P.S. Lucy wishes to be kindly remembered to you. Oh dear me, Emma. She must have been so difficult to live with. I sit with two heads on here, one feeling much sympathy with Jane having to deal with Emma's behaviour, and the other realising how messed up Emma was. And of course, at that time, trauma and alcohol abuse were not at all understood the way they are now. Now that we are into the thick of the back and forth exchange of Fred and Jane's letters, I'm hoping we'll get a much richer feel for their lives. I will keep searching out events of the time to flesh out the background, but I think you can tell season two of this podcast is going to be a lot more gossipy. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you for listening to my love letter time machine. Next time, we'll find out more about how Fred was settling into his new job and how Emma continues to create havoc and mayhem around her. In the meantime, you can follow me sharing excerpts of Fred and Janie's letters on Instagram at my love letter time machine, or one word, or on my blog at mydarlingjanie.co.uk. And if you'd like to write to me, you can at my love letter time machine at gmail.com. Until next time, take care. <laughs>